Hey church family, this is Tyler Birch, one of the ministers here at Anacortes Christian Church. I want to take a second and thank you for joining us today. We know that life is busy, and there's a lot of other things that we could be spending our time doing, so thank you. We hope that this podcast serves as a tool for you to grow closer with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. If you have questions about ACC, like who we are, where we're located, and other key information about this incredible body of believers, check out our website, anacortischristian.church. Enjoy the message. Well, I genuinely hope that you are all well. I can honestly say I miss seeing everyone on Sunday mornings. It's a little bit odd speaking to a camera in a mostly empty room, and it definitely makes me appreciate gathering quite a bit more. You know, church is a lot more than an event. We're here for one another. And I just want to say, if where you're at, you have needs, whether they're just prayer requests, um, maybe you fall into that risk category um, regarding this virus and, and you need someone to pick up some groceries for you. We've got lots of people who would just love the opportunity to rally around you and help with that. So please don't hesitate to contact the church office or one of your elders, and we'd love to get connected with that. I have a a psalm that I want to read for you that's going to tie into our message today, but it's a psalm of reassurance, I think, in this time. And uh, so let me go ahead and read this. This is Psalm 121, 1 through 4. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in our houses and our rooms all around our community and abroad, people are facing fears and uncertainty. And in many situations, we're not sure exactly what the climb looks like right now as we look to the mountain. Where does my help come from? So thank you for this reassurance that you, the maker of heaven and earth, are in charge, that you will not let our foot slip. You watch over us. You don't sleep on the job um, as though we could demand some job from you, but you are there. You're ready. You're our help in these times. You're our comfort, and, and we thank you, God, for that. So be our comfort in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's a lot of fears, as I said, in this time. This psalm is a song of ascents, it's called. It's a ascending the mountain. And today I want to make the case that getting to the top of the mountain is akin to being in the Lord's holy place. It is resting in his presence, and it is what Sabbath is all about. It's a place of absolute trust resulting in peace. Sometimes the journey looks daunting. We don't know how to handle these obstacles. And when the things that we rely on every day and we just take for granted suddenly get shaken up, we can lose our footing. But we can call on the Lord for help. He will not let your foot slip. When we have that assurance, that trust, and that's built into us, then what is the result? What does life look like? For one, 
We don't go hoarding toilet paper at the expense of other people who need it. And while that's a very serious issue, it's kind of funny, but all joking aside, it changes how we respond when inconveniences like this happen because we have this trust. I appreciate our gatherings, but I also appreciate the fact that we have this forced rest That this inconvenience, this quarantine has afforded us something that we can learn from. I've been able to spend more time with family. It's nice to have our evenings and not feel like we have to rush off to things. And what's interesting is that we have this series now that sort of landed on this time called Teach Us to Rest. We didn't plan for that to happen during a a pandemic. Okay, teach us to rest. Is that coincidental? In fact, as I look back, there's so many things that seem to be very um, coincidental, though I don't believe they are, about the timing of all this. You know, the, the funding to be able to support our, our preschool and lots of other things, the technology that's needed to do this. The, lots of things have kind of fallen into place, almost as if God knew this was going to happen and he knew what we would need. And now we're on a series called Teach Us to Rest. One of the things I said two weeks ago when we began this series is that we seem to be a culture that is defined by and addicted to convenience and busyness. Observing Sabbath rest is probably the most practical of the Ten Commandments, yet it is the one that Christians probably pay the least amount of attention to. Don't get me wrong, there are some good reasons for this. It's not required of us. It's not, uh, you know, a legalistic law or a formula. We don't have to do it, but we can do it. But even for those who realize, like, hey, this is not something that's, you know, that I'm judged for or not, but, but it would benefit me. I can see the reason for doing this. I can see that it's healthy. Most of us still don't do it. Why? Because we'd say, well, that's really inconvenient. You know, that's just, that's just hard to do. You got to prepare, you know, to, to, you know, you prepare your food for the coming day. Prepare to not actually work in any way on a certain day. To actually prepare rest is hard. It's inconvenient because there's all kinds of things that happen throughout the week that we are tied into now. It's really difficult. And the idea of inconveniencing ourselves is something we just rail against in our culture. Well, I can't do that. That'd be an inconvenience. But that's just the point. Like That is the point. The point of Sabbath is to willfully inconvenience yourself, releasing your autonomy over the world and over your life and handing that back over to God and trusting him to provide. And if we have built inconvenience into our regular life, then when in times like this, inconvenience is thrust upon us, we're ready for it. Like we're used to this. We're trained for this. We have prepared ourselves. You know, this situation, this pandemic, it will pass. Life will return to normal for most people. The question is, will we emerge changed from it? Will we have allowed God to teach us anything through it? Will we have anything to show for it? Lord, teach us to rest in this time, this opportunity. 
A little bit of review from two weeks ago. We had one week in between, so I think we need to go back and just cover the main points real quick. We looked at Exodus 20. Why rest? Why Sabbath? The first reason given is because God rested. So why rest? Because God rested on the seventh day from his creation. But what exactly does that mean? Does that mean that God got tired and he needed a break? And the answer, if you remember, was there's two kinds of work in the Old Testament scriptures. Therefore, there's two kinds of rest. There's a kind of, there's a kind of work that is like physically exerting oneself from which I need rest, physical rest from exertion. But there's another kind of work. There's a, a creation work, a creative work. And so rest from creativity looks different. Rest from creativity means that I'm allowing my creation to now exist for the purpose for which it was created. In other words, if I'm building a musical instrument or a work of art, and I never take my hands off, if I can never stop and rest, then that musical instrument can never be a musical instrument. It can never exist for the purpose for which it is being created, right? And that's the same with everything, with all of our work. So the idea of God resting is he's taking his hands off in order to allow himself to enjoy the thing that he's made to its utmost capacity. And then he calls us, as his image bearers, to do the same, to continue to cultivate and work what he has given us and turn them into things that can function on their own for the betterment of his creation, right? So we don't, God doesn't need a breather, but the point is if we never stop, then you can never allow something to just be. It's always becoming. So the point of rest is to have relationship, that was the point of Sabbath all along. The point of all creation was to lead to the seventh day, not to just continually be creating, so that God could relate to his creation, so that he could have a relationship with us. The purpose for Sabbath, the purpose for all creation is relationship, to enjoy one another. Now, let's apply that on human terms. Again, if I, we, you know, this is review if you were listening two weeks ago, but if I'm always correcting my children or my spouse, now don't get me wrong, there's in a, in a hopefully healthy capacity, we're called to um, develop and grow and pour into our kids. We're called to correct and admonish one another. But if we never take our hands off, if we never stop correcting, there's no relationship there because we're only always trying to fix each other. There is a time when we need to pull our hands off and actually just relate to one another for who they are, for who we are. Okay, so Sabbath is all about relationship, and the goal of all creation is Sabbath, ultimately. There is no evening and morning on the seventh day. It speaks to this idea that there is this eternal rest out there that we are invited into somehow. But there's a problem, and that problem is that, you know, our work is really, it's never done in this life. Life is a never-ending battle against disorder, chaos, and dirt, right? There's always dirt. There's laundry to fold. There's dishes to clean. There's repairs to be made. There's food to be put on the table. And work can seem like a never-ending mundane drudgery. And in the end, at the end of it all, 
The dirt wins, right? You end up under six feet of dirt, right? By the sweat of your brow, you will labor for bread until you return to the dust from which you came. And yet, Hebrews 4, 9, and 10 says, there remains, that means there exists right now, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The ability to be satisfied, experience completeness, enjoyment, fulfillment. For whoever has rest, entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There is a rest that we can enter into, God's rest. So how do we enter? The main scripture I want to read today is Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. Again, this is the other instance in which the Ten Commandments are given. And Deuteronomy is a little different than Exodus when it comes to the reason for the Sabbath, but they are connected. They're basically the same thing when you break it down. So, Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm." Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. I want to give you just a little visual illustration. Imagine you are going to climb a mountain. And you start off early in the day, and it's kind of cold down at the trailhead. It's pretty dark. There's lots of trees. You set out. You're down in a ravine or a valley. You can't see much. All you can see is sort of the trail ahead of you and the trees are kind of blocking everything. But as you get higher, um, increasingly there's more light. Every once in a while you get, you know, peekaboo views of the, of the vista around you. Until finally you get to the top and you might be exhausted from that hike, but you get up there and everything just opens up before you and you have this incredible scenery all around and everything's wide open. You can see the views. And at the top, let's say at the top of this mountain, there's this amazing lodge, like a, like a chalet or something like that, like something out of a, a picture of a vineyard in Italy or something, you know, where there's a vineyard, there's orchards, there's freshwater springs, and, and you get to sit and rest from your journey and enjoy um, being with your host and with one another and eating sumptuously on, on, on whatever they provide. What if God gave us a gift in the way we can organize our time. What if God designed time to function like a series of climbs, always culminating in a mountaintop experience? Once a week in scripture, then in festivals seven times a year in the Old Testament, then for an entire year every seven years, and then at a great jubilee event every seven times seven years. We'll talk more about that next week. But what if we were able to look at our work as, as a weekly journey of coming up that mountain, bringing order to chaos, light to darkness, 
in our world, culminating at a mountaintop at the very end of the week, whether our work is really finished for that week or not, knowing that we can rest in his finished work. If we never have those experiences and we just keep climbing, what will that do to us? You know, if you just keep going, it'll turn us bitter. It'll make us into slaves of our work. We will begin to believe that the world rests on our shoulders. We'll believe that we have control and dominion over our environment. We'll seek to become the masters of time and we'll, seek, and we'll begin to abuse our laborers and the people around us for the purpose of achieving some kind of convenience or rest that we think we can create on our own terms. We'll believe that our work is what redeems us. Our work is what gives us an identity. Our work is what sanctifies us, to use a biblical phrase. And this is why Deuteronomy points to the exodus from slavery as the reason for observing the Sabbath. It's a checks and balances. It's a stop for that mentality. And where were the people when God gave them these commands? They were at the mountain. I want to talk about mountains a little bit. All throughout scripture, God is said to dwell on a holy mountain. If you do a search for the term mountain in the Old Testament, you'll get 558 hits. And almost always they're spoken of in uh, either literal or very symbolic terms to talk about um, God's dwelling place or the dwelling of a contending power force or another God or a human ruler that's an antithesis of God. You know, it's a, it's a source of abundance and strength coming down from the mountain and so on. And, and so it's a very big theme in the Bible. And we're going to get a little bit nerdy with you here um, because I think this is just very profound, but you're going to see how it all comes together. I want to flesh out this imagery. First of all, the Garden of Eden is on a mountain. Ezekiel 28 refers to Eden as both the Garden of God and the Holy Mountain of God. A river flows down from Eden to the Garden and then branching into four rivers that water the earth. And this shows up again in the book of Revelation. So Genesis 1 and 2 begin down at the, the ocean level in watery chaos in darkness, and moving through six days, they, it culminates with Sabbath rest in a garden on a mountaintop where God dwells. Then you have the story of the Exodus, and this story parallels this journey from watery chaos to Sabbath on the mountaintop, starting with the Israelite children being thrown into the river, and God rescues one baby, Moses, in an ark. It's, you know, the word in English is basket, but it's actually the only other time the word ark is used in the Old Testament. Later, all the Genesis creation themes from the seven days of creation get repeated over the course of ten plagues. So in seven days of creation, there are ten creation acts, and in the ten plagues, there are words that connect with those creation acts, but they're in reverse, so it's like God is reversing his creation back into chaos and darkness for Egypt while saving the Israelites. And in fact, it ends with the plague of darkness. And then it starts over and goes in reverse. What was the first day of creation? God creates 
light and dark, and he separates the light and the dark. And in the same way, this pillar of fire and cloud comes down, and it says it separated the light on one side, the dark on the other. It was dark for Egypt, and it was light for the Israelites. Then what happens? Day two of creation, water. Then the Israelites see the parting of the waters, like the firmament in the Red Sea, and they emerge on dry land like day three. And then it all culminates with arriving at the mountain. Now, back in chapter three of Exodus, when Moses was kind of arguing with God about whether he would go and liberate the Israelites, he said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Okay, so the goal is to go from night and day, light and dark, and arrive just like Genesis chapter, just like the seventh day, Genesis chapter two, on the mountain with God, God's mountain. In fact, the, the poetry Right after the Red Sea, Moses, the song of Moses and Miriam, Exodus 15, verses 13 and 17 say, In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands have established. Same words, you will plant them, that God used to talk about planting um, the garden and planting the man in the garden to be fruitful and cultivate it and so on. So we have this pattern being repeated in real-time history here. The goal is to get to the mountain where God dwells, and to ascend the mountain of the Lord. And then later, when Moses is with God, in chapter 31 of Exodus, the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Now remember, when Moses was arguing with God, what did God say? He said, this will be a sign to you. When you bring the Israelites out, you will worship God on this mountain. And now they're on the mountain that God said would be a sign. And he says, this Sabbath will be a sign to you. Same words, that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I set you apart. I define you. I make you perfect and complete and holy. If I look to my work to make me holy or special or set apart and I never rest, I will only ever be a slave to the wrong master. And lastly, in Exodus, you have this crazy, boring section of the second half of the book of Exodus that's all about describing the instructions for building the tabernacle and carrying out those instructions. But there's a pattern to it. It's very interesting. In Exodus 25, God presents Moses with the plans for the tabernacle, which he says is a copy of what, God, what Moses experienced on the mountain. And he says, these plan, and these plans, they're dispensed in seven speeches by God, like seven days of creation, right? Each speech is separated by, and Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying... The seventh and final act of speech 
is about the Sabbath again. It's a reminder to keep the Sabbath. Actually, we just read it in Exodus 31. After this, in chapter 40, the completion of the tabernacle is once again given with seven statements of Moses completing the work that God had given him. Each speech is separated with just as Yahweh commanded Moses. Those words. And then it ends with, and Moses completed the work just as Genesis 2 ends with or begins with the ending of that account. And God created the work. What happens next? The Lord's presence comes down and it fills the tabernacle in a cloud of glory that's so intense that Exodus ends with a cliffhanger. Moses could not even go into the tent. So envision this with me. You've got like, let's, let's put this, maybe I'll even put this up on the web. You've got three columns. You've got creation, the seven days of creation. You've got the tabernacle instructions and then you've got the building of the tabernacle Seven movements each time defined by a phrase. There was evening and morning for Genesis. God spoke to Moses saying for the instructions and he did it just as Yahweh commanded him for the last part. Genesis culminates with God settling in and resting in his creation as a Sabbath. The instructions culminate with instructions to keep the Sabbath. And the building of the tabernacle culminates with God's presence dwelling in that tent space, which now represents the mountain, which represents the garden, and people being able to come back into God's presence and dwell and rest there in his completed work. One author calls the tabernacle, or excuse me, the Sabbath, a cathedral in time, because what the Sabbath day is to time is what the tabernacle or temple would be to space, the place and time where we meet with God. Psalm 24, 3 says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And in Hebrew poetry, the second line, when there's a couplet of lines, always is a way of rephrasing the first so his point is that to stand in the holy place, God's holy place of the tabernacle, is to ascend the mountain of the Lord. So let me try to bring this all home. What if God gave us a pattern in time, a series of climbs up the mountaintop, every week a climb, so that we could have purpose in our work, so that we could rest and have relationship with creation and with one another and with God? What if God invites you there to dwell with him? What if that willful inconvenience prevents the abuse of relationships and prevents us from believing that it is our efforts, our climb, our work that sanctify and complete us? What if we learn to see every week as a journey through the waters of chaos into order and light, culminating in restful abundance and relationship? How would that change our lives? The Sabbath is a sign of a covenant relationship with God on the blissful garden mountaintop, the completion of the journey. But notice, Moses couldn't even go in. And only the high priest could go into that presence. And, and only a few people could go up the mountain partway 
because his presence is too holy. The psalm said, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. You see, we are idolatrous, impure people, which means we cannot in and of ourselves stand in God's holiness. But God gave the Sabbath as a sign, a foretaste, a symbol that acts as a taste of what is to come. So they would have hope that ultimately what they were doing was pointing to a day when there would be no veil, no barrier between that presence, that somehow he would do, deal with the problem of their consciences. So what did that celebration look like? How did they enact this religiously legalistic rule-keeping in obedience to God? They had a lot of fun. They ate really good food as a foretaste of being in God's presence ultimately. They sang songs together in worship and they told stories. They'd go to synagogue and learn about the scriptures and what they say. They played games and other recreational activities together. Isaiah 25, 6 through 8 says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken, you know, today of all days. We could use a ritual that enacts that hope. That wiping away the tears from every eye. That taking away the anxiety and the fear, right? Psalm 36, 8 through 9 says... They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. That word delights in Hebrew is the word Edens. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. The Sabbath was a sign for the people of all these things. The question is, do we really need this sign today? After all, it was a sign of an old covenant at Mount Sinai. Today, we don't have that sign. We have a new covenant in Jesus. And the book of Hebrews clarifies this. It says those old rituals and rules, they were signs that pointed to something that was coming, but in and of themselves, they carried no power to cleanse our consciences, allowing us to ascend the mountain of the Lord. Who may ascend? The one with clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't go after idols and so on. Just doing the Sabbath doesn't create that power within us. Hebrews 9 says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So Jesus offers us a new covenant by his own blood for our forgiveness so that we may now enter into his rest. 
The sign of that covenant is no longer the Sabbath, but the new heart that we needed is the sign of that covenant. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us is the sign of that relationship with us. It's our redemption from our slavery to sin, just as the Sabbath was the sign of their redemption from slavery in Egypt. In a sense, the Sabbath is no longer our sign pointing to a future relationship because in Jesus, we now have the relationship that the Sabbath was pointing to all along. So what does that mean for us? Do we need to do this today? Well, if the point of doing it is to point to something that we don't have, then no, we don't need it. But if we do it, we can do it to celebrate and put into action what we do have. There's no rule that says you have to do this, but I think there's a spiritual condition that needs it, needs something to remind us of what we have in Christ. In a sense, the sign was to point to Jesus all along. Your work doesn't complete you. It doesn't give you the identity you you desire. It doesn't make you right with God. He says, I, the Lord, sanctify you. And that was the point from the beginning. You know, a lot of people, especially post-Reformation thinking, goes like this. Those Old Testament rules and rituals, they were all about earning your way to God's salvation. That's actually not true at all. You see, the people believed that God had already saved them. He had already brought them out of Egypt. They didn't need to sign a contract before he rescued them. He rescued them first. The rules, the Sabbath, the rituals were only about how to live in relationship with God. How to look like God to the rest of the world who is still living in chaos and darkness. What does order in life look like? That was the purpose. Psalm 121, 1 through 4 again says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Notice the psalmist is looking at the climb, perhaps setting out on a difficult week, or facing an insurmountable obstacle, he needs help. And God who dwells on the mountain does not simply wait to see if he can make it on his own strength or by his works please God enough to be allowed to climb the mountain or something along those lines. No, God comes down to help. He doesn't rest, he doesn't slumber or sleep. He will not let your foot slip. God desires us and always has desired us to be with him. But if we have no desire to be on the mountaintop, if that experience is just too inconvenient, then what in the world do we need his help for anyway? I want to bring this home. About seven or eight years ago, after one of our church services, um, I was... I found a communication card from your bulletins. And I I found a card that uh, one of our high schoolers had written on. They were, a couple of high schoolers were using it to pass notes back and forth. And they said something like this. They said, if this, 
referring to our service. If this is what heaven is like, I want nothing to do with it. I want no part of that. And that was heartbreaking, partially because sometimes I can identify with that, and partially because it it so misses the point. Like, if your only experience of God, if your only experience of his presence is a stodgy church service, I've been watching the great British baking show. I had to use the word stodgy. You know, they use it a lot to talk about sticky dough or something. But if that's your experience of God... You know, the Sabbath was not Sunday morning for the early church. They met as an extra meal gathering, a symbolic meal to celebrate the Eucharist together. They still usually celebrated the Sabbath, which is Friday night to Saturday night. But if our only experience of God is a ritualistic, you know... We try to make church entertaining. We try to make church exciting. We try to give it profound truth. But how did they create an experience of God? They rested. They celebrated his work. They enjoyed his creation. They interacted with one another. They had good food, good wine as a symbol of what Isaiah said his kingdom is like. Jesus showed up and announced his ministry on a Sabbath. What did he do to point towards the coming kingdom of God? He ate with people, right? He healed people. He set them free from infirmities and demon possession and so on, right? And these were all the signs of God's kingdom, of God's presence. If we don't have anything like that, and, and, and for you, that sign of who God is, is a church service only? What does that do for us? My heart breaks for those kids who went to church for most of their lives and never knew God. This church. Because their impression of him is something they don't want anything to do with. There has to be something more in our lives that points to who God is and makes that connection for what he's really like. The best food and aged wine pouring down from the mountaintop of his garden presence for us. We can live that out in some way, can't we? I want to offer you an experience. This Friday, something my family has done, but we haven't probably done it in about a year, so we're going to start up again Uh, something that Jewish people do and a lot of Jewish Christians do is celebrate Shabbat or in particular there's the the Kaddush um, ceremony on Friday night. It inaugurates the Sabbath day and it's just a special little time where you light candles, you turn the lights off and I'm going to give us a script for it. You customize it to, um, to bring in Jesus to it, to point the symbols towards him. And, and you offer, you, you, it's very special. And it might not be for everyone. It's going to be out of place for a lot of people. But the amazing thing is my kids love it. To this day, they still ask if we can do Shabbat. Because there's a time when we light a candle for each kid and we put our hands on them and we pray a blessing over them individually. And they just soak that in. And it's so beautiful. And you recite some scriptures and you do some other things. And so I'm going to make that available. And I want to invite you to do that because it's something you can just kind of put your hands on and actually do that actively celebrates this in some way. 
Following that, you can have dinner together. They recommend that you stay at the table together and, uh, until everyone's finished, and then you thank God for the meal. And then what you do from there, you know, Jewish people celebrate the Sabbath. They have rules that they stick to. What you do from there at this point, I'm going to say, is up to you. Um, but we're just going to, we're going to give you a recipe for bread that you have during that time. And um, so look for that. You'll be able to download it pretty soon here. When this is all over, what's going to be different for you? What will you have learned besides washing your hands more? Do you know how to rest? Do you know how to trust? Do you have an experience of God's goodness that points to an ultimate presence and completion? In conclusion, we're going to take communion together. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings and then later in Hebrews 12, 18 through 24, it says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and a storm. He's speaking of the first mountain, Mount Sinai. To a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If... Even an animal touches the mountain. It must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood spoke revenge. Jesus' blood speaks forgiveness. So, if you have your communion elements today, let's pray, and then we'll take these together. Father, I pray right now that you would give us a sense of your presence, a sense of what it's like to be with you. And I pray that you would give us the ability to bring rhythms back into our time, rhythms that culminate in celebration, both for what is coming and for what we already have in you. Give us the ability to eat and drink in celebration of you and to spend time in relationship with one another, appreciating your world and your creation and your people as your handiwork, created in Christ for good works, that we should walk in them, as Ephesians says. Give us the ability to experience you through those times, those disciplines, those rhythms in our life. Give us refreshment and rest. Help us not to lose the opportunity that this inconvenience has afforded us. And now, Lord, as we come to your table all over our community and beyond, we thank you, God, that you paid the price 
to remove our sin and cleanse our consciences so that we can come to the very thing that this ritual was pointing towards all along. And we do so now. We do so now in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. We want to take a second and remind you that we love you and God loves you, and you always have a place here in Accordus Christian Church. We know that this time in our nation and world is a difficult time. It's often lonely as we are distancing ourselves from each other. But please know that God's plan for this church, this body, has not changed because we are serious about reaching people for Jesus. Please join us online in the coming weeks. We're on Facebook and on YouTube. We go live every Sunday at 10 a.m. We're excited to talk to you, whether over the phone or through email, and we are very excited to hopefully see you all in person soon. God bless.